time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life. Welcome to Desperation. I want to introduce myself. I'm J.D. Swilly. Like David said, I am the youth pastor at a, or one of the youth pastors at a church in northern Colorado in Loveland. Uh, not the town, not the ski area. Uh, people from not from Colorado get that confused all the time. They're like, oh, you've got great skiing. No, we have uh, a beautiful view of the mountains, though. Uh, and uh, amazing, amazing, amazing church, Resurrection Fellowship, and uh, been uh, pastoring there for three years. And so that's me. Uh, my beautiful bride of almost 12 years is running around here somewhere. She's running errands, trying to take care of us, take care of our group. Uh, but otherwise, I was hoping she'd be here, but she's busy. And uh, we have few, uh, three beautiful children, uh, eight. My daughter's eight. Uh, middle son is uh, six, and the youngest is two, so that's a little bit about me. Now tell me a little bit about you. No, I'm just kidding. That'd be chaos. Okay. Hey, really, seriously, though, I just want to tell you guys, thank you all very much for being here, being part of Desperation. And uh, you know what? This week uh, is a special week. It's not by any accident. It's not by any happenstance that you're here this week. You know, God has not been caught off guard that you signed up and you came to Colorado Springs. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not by any uh, random chance that you're even sitting in the chair that you're sitting in in this room right now. And I just want you to know that God sees each and every one of you. He sees that you're important. He loves you. He sees your church. He sees your student ministries. And he has a good plan for all of it. Good plan for all of it. So and my prayer is this. My prayer is that by the end of our time here at Desperation, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to do his complete work in you over these next couple of days that we have left. That you don't hold anything back from him, that you let him infiltrate every part of your being so that everything that he wants to accomplish over the next couple of days, that you allow him to do that because you are the only one that can stand between what he wants to do and, and what happens in your life. The, the devil can't stop God. Your friends can't stop God. If you've, got believer, if you've got parents that aren't unbeliever or that they aren't believers, they can't stop God with what he wants to do in your life. Only you can. So just have your heart open to what the Lord wants to do through our, the rest of our time here at Desperation. And my prayer is that if you do that, you will truly leave here being a person of passion and a person of intercession, a person of consecration and mission. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for our time that we get to gather here today. Lord, we thank you that we live in this incredible nation, America. God, although you are not American, Lord, we thank you that we do live here and that we have the ability to pack as many people into this room as we possibly can to uh, learn about you and to connect with your heart and with what you want to do in our lives as individuals and corporately. So, Lord, we invite your presence in here right now today. God, we say, have your way. And, Lord, I just pray that every single one of us is marked because of what happens over this next hour or so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? Well, uh, if you guys opened up your desperation books and you saw my little face and you saw what I was going to talk about, that is not what I'm going to talk about. 
uh, when they asked me, uh, hey, J.D., send us a little synopsis of what you'll be teaching, uh, I just thought, okay, yeah, I'll do that, and this, this seems good. Uh, but uh, after they printed it, and uh, a couple weeks later, I realized that's really not what the Lord wants to speak about. So I, I'm sorry if that was misleading in any way that you came here. If you get up and leave, I will not be offended. Uh, we'll all pray for you that you'll be saved, but I won't be offended. But anyway, this morning, what I'd like to do is share a story with you. It's my story. But it's not just my story. It's also your story. If you're a Christ follower and you're living on the earth today, it's also your story. It's an ancient story, but it's not something that you can read about in the Bible. And this story starts about 600 years ago. But before we rewind time all the way back 600 years, let's just go back a few years from now. In uh, the summer of 2006 was my first um, time that I was exposed to desperation. And uh, because of that, um, because of my experience in the summer of 2006, uh, I'm just completely sold out to what desperation, des- the desperation movement stands for, what they're about, passion, consecration, mission, intercession. It's, we share the same core values. But in September of 2008, almost three years ago, right here in this building, uh, I had a defining moment. Or I might, maybe I should say it was a redefining moment. Myself and 15 other youth pastors, some of the youth pastors here at New Life, some of them from around different parts of the nation, we met here for two days to pray together and to discuss and talk about the state of the union as far as student ministry was concerned. And over, our, over these two days, right in the middle of these two days, as we we're praying together, as we we're talking, um, the Holy Spirit redefined for us what the win was concerning student ministry. You guys know what I mean when I say the win? I mean, like, what, it, what, does, a, what does a successful student ministry look like? What uh, does a, a student ministry that, that has accomplished some great things, what does that look like? A student ministry that has achieved something of, of, of greatness, something that, that will last, what does that look like? The Holy Spirit kind of reshaped that for us. And instead of the win being how many big events or activities that we could do within a year span with our students. Instead of the win being um, how awesome our facilities or our programs could be. Instead of the win being defined as how many people we could pack into one room week after week, the Holy Spirit shifted that for us. And the win was now defined as this, in this statement. Our passion, our mission, our focus, our purpose is to raise up a generation of young men and young women that have a fiery passion in their heart for Jesus Christ. Some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, duh, Uh, no kidding. What else would you be doing? It seems very obvious. It seems very simple. Yeah, we needed it to be obvious. We needed it to be simple. We needed it to be clearly defined. Because, you guys, it it might be easier than we'd like to admit, but sometimes in our churches, and our student ministries, we can become focused on the external things rather than the eternal things. 
And so it's, instead, it's, it's perfectly okay, perfectly okay. Listen, it's, it's great to have awesome big events and activities. It's awesome to have great facilities and programs. It's fantastic. I think Jesus loves it when we pack as many people as we can into one room at a time. But we can do all those things and not be raising up a generation of young men and young women to serve Jesus more more than anything else in their life. We can be doing all those things and not imparting into them a red, hot, blazing, fiery passion for Jesus and his kingdom. And I know that you can do that because I've done it. So how do we do that? We want to be a people, we want to be a generation that wants to love and serve Jesus more than anything else in the world. How do we do that? How is this possible? You know, I, I had a pastor tell me one time, this is actually a pastor I used to work for, and um, we had just come home from desperation one year, and the students were fired up for Jesus ready to set the world on fire. And it scared the beans out of him. He wasn't ready for that. And he told me, he said, you know, it's just good enough if we just raise our young people to just be good citizens. He said that to me. And I know that there are people in this room who know who I'm talking about, that know this person, And Jesus loves him, and Jesus can work through him. But I'm telling you, that's not why I'm in this. That's not why I'm a Christian. I didn't sign up to follow Jesus to be a good citizen. I'm in this to raise up a generation of young people, a generation of young men and young women of God to be world changers. That's why I do this. Not to just raise up a generation of young men and young women who don't smoke pot and, you know, don't drink. Yeah, obviously we shouldn't be doing those things. Obviously we should be people of moral character. But it's not enough to just be a person of high moral character. God has called us to set this world on fire. God has called us to advance his kingdom in the earth today. Are you with me? So how do we do it? How do we become that people who truly want to follow Jesus more than anything else in the world? How do we become that people who have a fiery passion in our hearts and stay that way so that October comes, November comes, and desperation's not just something that's faded in the background. But when October and November and December are here, we're just as passionate as we were as we are today that we're up front worshiping in our churches with just as much passion as we're up front worshiping worshiping today? How do we become this people? Let me ask the question in a little bit different way. What makes a church dynamic? If you were to sit down with Jesus at Starbucks and share a couple of mocha coconut frappuccinos, with Jesus, when I say a couple, I mean a couple for you and a couple for him. And say, Jesus, talk to me about what, is, what would be pleasing to you 
about your church today? What, what, Jesus, what would impress you about your church today? What would he say? I, I think there's a lot of things that maybe we could think up, maybe the preconceived notions that we think he might say. You know, we live in, a, in, in America and, in, in, and all over the world, there's all different kinds of churches. There's big churches, there's medium-sized churches, there's little churches. Is that something that's uniquely impressive to God, how big a church is? I don't think so. I know for sure that Jesus has given us uh, the commandment. He's given us charge to go out and to preach the world and, or preach the gospel to all the world, to make disciples of all the nations. Yeah, but is it uniquely impressive to God how many people gather under one roof? I don't think so. In, in our church culture day here in America, we hear a lot about trying to be relevant, relevant to the culture. And although I do believe that it's important uh, that, that to have the right amount of importance to be focused on being able to relate to culture, I don't think that it's necessarily something that's uniquely impressive to Jesus. You know, we, we have people uh, that have been in ministry for 40 years. I, I know this fantastic lady, Micah knows her. She's been in youth ministry for over 40 years. She just turned 62 last week. She's still in youth ministry, making impact on students and youth pastors all over America. And I can't say to you that she's culturally the coolest person that I know. But because she's filled with the power of God, because she loves teenagers, she's totally, totally relevant. Culturally relevant? She's like old enough to be the grandma of the people she's ministering to. But she's filled with God's power. She's filled with passion. So I don't think if we were to sit down and have a conversation with Jesus, I don't think he would say, the number one thing about my church is that I want them to, to be culturally relevant. You know, I can hear Jesus now. You know that Justin Bieber kid? I really like him. He sings that song, Baby, Baby. I would just wish he, Jesus, you know, I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that Justin Bieber song, and I want you to sing my name. Jesus, 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 oh. Now, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's really important to Jesus. You know, I don't think that's important to him. Listen, cultural relevance without compromise is okay, but I'm not sure that it's a core thing. I'm not sure it's a primary thing. I'm not sure that a church that's busy out doing a lot of different things, a lot of different programs, a lot of great things, I'm not even sure that that's the most important thing to Jesus. I think it would be a byproduct of this important thing, but I don't necessarily think it's the hub because I know churches and I know people that are out busy doing a lot of good things, but yet they're still missing it. They're not having the impact they could have. The, the impact in their own life is not what it could be because they're missing this element. Listen, what I believe that really fuels the church to be dynamic, what I believe that really fuels the church to be the living expression of Christ here on earth today is not necessarily to be a big church, not necessarily to be a relevant church or a busy church or whatever else church. What I think is the most important thing more than anything else is that I believe it would be a praying church that would impress Jesus. Because when we look at a praying church, it's dependent upon God and him alone. 
A praying church says, yeah, God, we might be big or small. We might be this, that, or the other. But God, it's not about us. It's about you. The very nature of prayer makes the statement that says, God, we are dependent upon you. There's another youth pastor in my church. His name's Pastor Bob. Pastor Bob recently told me about a prayer that he prays often. And, I, and I've adapted it into my heart, own heart and my own life. And a lot of the student leaders and the other leadership team that we have in our student ministries have adapted it also. And that's this prayer. Jesus, you are everything and I am nothing. And some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, that's not true because I'm more than a conqueror in Christ. Yeah, in Christ. You are nothing without him. It's not even in my notes. I don't even know why I said that. Oswald Chambers said this, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Think about this. Prayer is the hinge on which the door of the kingdom of God swings. Prayer is the hinge on which the door of the kingdom of God swings. The door needs to open. The door needs to close. Guess what moves it? The hinge. <clears throat> you guys remember? You guys remember Jesus driving out the money changers out of the temple? You guys know this account? Jesus goes into the temple. People are buying sacrifices because at this time, Jesus hadn't died on the cross to atone for the sin for all of mankind. So people had to make animal sacrifices to God to atone for their sin. And so people are going into the temple and the money changers are ripping them off. They're charging them, they're, they're gouging them with their prices. People that are bringing in sacrifices for them to sell aren't, weren't giving them fair market value. Jesus walks in and he sees what's going on. He sees the misuse of the temple. And he, he sees that it's not being used for what it was, was made for. It is, God is not being glorified, but my people are being ripped off. And he turns over. That wasn't very impactful. Or something I can turn on. He turns over the tables. He turns over the tables and he grabs something. He makes a whip and he drives the money changers out of there. And Jesus is not upset that just things were being sold in the temple, but he was upset because the people were being taken advantage of. Jesus is not upset that we're selling dance the dust off the floor t-shirts over here in the lobby, okay? He's not upset that you can go and buy this rubber bracelet, all right? But what he would be upset is if we said, if you don't buy the t-shirt, then you're really not a strong believer. Then you don't really love Jesus. But that's not what's going on. So Jesus is not angry that we have product. <laughs> Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, and he says this. He says, my temple will be called a house of prayer. Because he's not just talking about a building. I think it's interesting that we're sitting here in the World Prayer Center, which is an amazing thing that we have buildings that are dedicated just for prayer, that we have, may have a room in our facility in our church that's dedicated just for prayer. I think that's good. I think we need that. That's not what it, just what he was talking about. He's primarily talking about you and me. 
we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and Ephesians chapter 2, Paul refers to us, you and me, as being living temples. We're the house of prayer that Jesus was talking about. I want you to say this, and I want you to say it with conviction. Say, I will be a house of prayer. Say it again. Say, I will be a house of prayer. Now say this. Say, I am a house of prayer. So guys, listen. When we think about Jesus wanting his church to be dynamic and powerful and effective, without a doubt, the key element that makes everything else work is prayer. This is it. This is how people, we can become a people who have a fiery passion for Jesus in our heart. And if we want our churches back home, if we want our schools, if we want our cities to be passionate about Jesus, then we ourselves, right here in this room, we have to be passionate about Jesus. And I have a blazing red hot fire burning in our heart that cannot be quenched. Some of you may have heard our friend David Perkins tell this story. Some of you may have not. David tells this story about when he was in junior high. He's like leading prayer meetings. He's passionate for God. He's out talking to people about Jesus. He's just red hot on fire. And his youth pastor sits him down. He says, David, I want to talk to you. I think it's great that you've got all this passion for God. And I think it's great that you're leading prayer meetings and This is fantastic, but I just want you to know, I want to prepare you that it's not always going to be this way. Someday that you're going to lose that fire in your heart. Someday you're going to lose that passion. And I just want you to be prepared for that. And David said he even showed him in Scripture where there's been people that were doing incredible things for the Lord, but then they fell away and they sinned and they no longer passionate for God. And if David were in this room right here today, he would tell you this. He'd say, say, 20 years down the road from when my youth pastor told me that the passion would leave, he says, I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly, 100% can tell you that I disagree with him. David said, David would tell you that my passion for Jesus grows every day. And then he would tell you how that is. Because he spends time with Jesus every day. There's this weird thing about the things that we crave. The more we consume of something, the more we crave it. And he would tell you the key element to having a fiery passion in your heart for Jesus and staying that way is spending time with Jesus every day in prayer and in the scriptures. Let's do this. Let's roll the clock back a little bit further. It's 2,000 years ago. Let's look at the early church for a second. The early church was made up of believers who actually walked and talked and saw Jesus with their eyeballs. The early church was the remnant of believers that was left over after Jesus had died, rose from the dead, hung out here on earth for 40 days, and then ascended to heaven. Okay? What marked the early church as being dynamic? What propelled them to spread Christianity throughout the world as quickly as they did. Well, let's look at this for a second. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He's hanging out here on earth for 40 days. In Acts 1, he's prophesying to the disciples. And then, boom, Scotty beat me up. He goes up to heaven, sends to heaven right there in front of their eyeballs. 
And if that were to happen to me today, what would be your response? You'd be like, what just happened? Our our fearless leader is gone. He just got beamed up uh, to heaven. What is going on? They're just standing there dumbfounded. Two angels show up. They say, what are you guys doing? Close your mouth. Go back into Jerusalem. So they did that. They went back into Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, they all met together. This is the first thing they did. And they were constantly united in prayer. You guys, it was prayer that fueled the early church to propel Christianity so quickly throughout the earth. And if we were to read through just the book of Acts, we could see that the text is riddled with references of people praying and people gathering to pray. I want to ask you a question. If, like, a foreign exchange student came and he lived with you or she lived with you for a while, and then they were to move back to wherever they were from and they were to tell their friends about you and about us as a community, what would they say? Would they say, like, oh, yeah, um, they like to hang out and they like to go to Starbucks, they like to eat Qdoba, they like to go to movies and concerts, but more than anything, they love to pray. Would they say that? Or would they say, yeah, they like to pray, but they love Qdoba? I hope not. I hope that that's not what someone would say about us after spending some time with us. Check this out. Acts chapter 2, this is a famous, famous moment in Scripture. Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up in front of a crowd of people, and without a microphone, no microphone, no bullhorn, no PA system, no giant video screens, no live webcast, Peter raises his voice to preach, and 3,000 people that day make a decision to follow Christ. Amazing. But what happened that led up to that point? It all started in an upper room with people that were so hungry for a move of God that they got on their face and they prayed. Guys, if we continue to look at church history over the last 2,000 years, from that moment that leads us all the way up to here today, we would see that wherever there's a prayer source, there's a power source. One of the most famous preachers of the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, said this. He said, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Why? Because he knew the power of prayer. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't preach but he knew that the preaching without the power that comes from prayer is not as effective. People would come and visit Spurgeon's church and say, what are you guys doing? You guys are having amazing revival. You guys are seeing amazing results, awesome signs, wonders, and miracles. What's going on? They'd come and visit his church, and he would take them down to the basement where they were constantly having prayer meetings. And he'd call it, they called the prayer meetings the powerhouse, which... Hear David tell the story, he says, sounds like a 1980s youth group. 
powerhouse. Whoa, taken from God. Yo. Charles Spurgeon was a little ahead of his time. It was an 1800s youth group name, not an 80s youth group name. Because I started this session by telling you that I was going to tell you a story. It's my story. It's not just my story, though. It's also your story. Like I said, it began 600 years ago. Actually, I might need some help from some people here. I might call some of my people up to help me. I didn't even pre-warn you about this or anything, but uh, I know that you'd be good help to me, okay? 1400s, 1400s AD, the Roman Catholic Church was religiously dominating all of Europe, spreading their propaganda. Again, guys, listen, just for a second. I'm not bashing Catholics right now, okay? I'm just telling you the story of history. They wanted their corrupt propaganda, their corrupt doctrine spread throughout the world, but there was this guy, a priest from Prague University by the name of John Huss. And uh, Brittany, could you come up here for me and just kind of, let's just have this as a visual. You can just stand on the stage and hold that. And if you guys can see that in the back, but we're going to do a little timeline thing here. John Huss, 1400s. He started to work with the people in Moravia, which geographically, that's like where the Czech Republic is right now. And so John Huss, he recognizes the excesses of the church and he begins to preach against the abuses of power. And he looks to the scripture for God's word instead of the Pope. And he teaches the people that you can have a personal relationship with God and not have to talk to a priest to talk to God. And he tells people that you should be able to have the scriptures in your hand in your own language and not have to learn Latin or Hebrew or Greek to read it. These are the kinds of things that he was saying. Well, this wasn't going over very well with the Roman Catholic Church. And they called him out as a heretic, and they had him burned at the stake. But before he was burned at the stake, he prophesied something. He prophesied that all this teaching that he had done, all this work that he had done with Moravians, all the praying that he had done with them, he prophesied that it would be a hidden seed. Say hidden seed. That would be buried in the ground, but one day it would spring forth into revival. 200 years pass, and there's a guy by the name of John Amos Comenius. One of my other people want to come up here? Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> John Amos Comenius shows up on the scene. He says to the Moravians, hey, let's get out of here. We're being persecuted. We're being religiously persecuted. So the Moravians become refugees for 100 years moving from one place to another without a permanent residence, without a permanent home. And before Comenius died, he said this. He said, that hidden seed that John Huss had foretold of, he said, in 100 years from now, it will spring forth into revival. He prophesied it. He dies. The prophecy is forgotten about. The gener next generation forgets what he has to say. Time passes. 1700s, there's this guy born into a wealthy German family, a guy by the name of Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Some of you may have, yeah, say that 10 times fast. Some of you may have heard of him. He's known in history as the rich young ruler who said yes. Zinzendorf, he took on one of these Moravian refugees, but before long, he had about 300 of them living on his estate 
in what is now Hernhut, Germany. And the Moravians kind of look to him as their spiritual leader. And so I need someone to do the Zinzendorf thing for me. Come on, uh, you're, you've got something else to do later. So Katie, why don't you come on up? Come on up. Sorry, Bree. Zinzendorf shows up. He's kind of the spiritual leader. And so uh, what happens here is uh, he starts studying about the Moravians. And he comes across a text that refer, goes back and refers to this guy here, John Amos Comenius, when he prophesied 100 years ago that one day the hidden seed that Huss talked about that would spring forth into revival. And he was like, wow, this is awesome. And he looks at the date in which Comenius prophesied it, and it was 99 years and 51 weeks ago that he prophesied it. Zinzendorf tells the Moravians what's going on. They gather together for an all-night prayer meeting, August 12th, 1727. They held this all-night prayer meeting. The next day, you guys, is referred in history. It's referred to, to history as the Moravian Pentecost. On August 13, 1727, the Holy Spirit came down, upon, came down upon this group of 300 Moravians in such a mighty way. They had this powerful encounter with God. The hidden seed that had been prophesied about was finally springing forth into revival. They, they decided to, uh, to start a prayer meeting. They designated a place in, in the village as, as the place of prayer. They would also go on prayer walks around and throughout the village. And what they decided was is that uh, they would divide up uh, sections in one hours. And what they would do is they'd take two, peop- two groups of two people in two different places, I guess, and they would pray for one hour at a time. And then they would do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So they had 168 hours in a week, 168 one-hour increments, and they had someone praying constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Can you guess how long this lasted? Like, if we do it, like, it lasts like three or four days, five days. I just heard of a group, came back from Belize. You guys did this for like five days. It's awesome. Awesome. And you saw amazing results of it. This lasted, this prayer meeting lasted for 110 years-ish, somewhere in there. Some historians say 125 years. Some say 110 years. Some more say more anywhere in between that. 110 years. What, what happens when you go to a prayer meeting for 110 years? I can tell you what happens. I can tell you what happens to anybody that decides to make themselves into be a house of prayer. Your heart begins to burn with what the heart of, heart of God burns for. Your heart comes into alignment. And what God is passionate about, you become passionate about it. The things that break God's heart, the things that make him cry out and say, No! Different injustices, evils in the world, your heart comes into alignment with that. And your heart says, no, also. And that's what happened. The Moravians' hearts began to burn for the unreached people groups of the world. And it led them to action. They begin to go out all over the world, planting churches, doing missionary work, 
You guys are going to hear about this later in the conference, but I'm going to give you a little precursor to it. There's this one opportunity that Zinzendorf found out about a West Indies island. It was full of slaves. I don't know what the trade was on the island. They didn't allow Christianity there. The only way you could get to the island is if you're going to be a slave there. So these two guys by the name of David Nietzscheman and John Leonard Dover said, we'll go. We'll sell ourselves into slavery. And the money that they received for selling themselves into slavery was enough money to pay for the boat ride to get to the island so they could live among the slaves and preach the gospel to them. Some of the other Moravians that weren't quite as passionate as they were tried to talk them out of it. Don't do it. Don't go. We're never going to see you. You're never going to come back for the rest of your life. This is not like going to Club Med. This is not like going to Mexico to Cancun for vacation and you come back after a week. This is it. You go, you're gone once and forever. We're never going to see you. But they had counted the cost. And it didn't matter because they had made themselves to be houses of prayer. And their heart burned for the things that God's heart burned for. And what did they say? Some of you know. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Which to this day has become the anthem of the Moravian movement and the Moravian church. The the Moravians over this time, over this 110 year period, mobilized 3,000 missionaries. And basically started what is now the modern missionary movement. Church historians say that the Moravian church would be the largest denomination in the world, except they would go and they'd do a mission work, they'd plant a church, and then they'd give it over to someone like the Lutherans or whoever else, the Methodists or whoever, they'd give it over to them and then they'd just move on to the next place and go start a church. They didn't care about making a name for themselves. They cared about, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. One Moravian missionary team was on a ship headed for the American colonies. They were headed to Georgia in 1736. And the ship was caught in a horrible storm. Everyone thought they were going to die. The Moravians on board, they came together. They huddled together, began praying, and they began singing hymns. Well, on board the ship was this Anglican minister. And he saw the faith. He saw the passion of the Moravians. And he began to question, if I die, if I shipwreck and die in the storm, I'm not even sure I'll go to heaven. Because he began to question his position in God compared to the passion that the Moravians had. The ship did not get shipwrecked. They did not capsize. They weathered the storm. And he begins talking with the Moravians. The Moravians begin to share with him what it really means to have faith and hope and trust in Jesus and how you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can have an assurance of your salvation. A couple of months later, this Anglican minister had a born-again experience of his own. And that guy's name was John Wesley. You guys know who John Wesley is? John Wesley became a circuit rider, traveling all over England and America. Great revivals came out of his ministry. This thing called Methodism, the Methodist movement. John Wesley is the father of the Methodist church. 
And I don't want you to think, and, and if you're in here and you're Methodist, awesome. And some of, some of you may be down on Methodist, but listen, none of that matters. Look at the history, look at the passion. There's Methodist churches all over this world. They're doing incredible things to exalt the name of Jesus. Because what the Moravians did. Methodist church is huge, guys. They're all over the world. Let's fast forward a little bit, a little over 100 years. 1873, there's a guy by the name of Charles Fox Parham. He was born by the age of 15. Oh, here's the connection. Charles Fox Parham grew up in the Methodist church. Thank you, John Wesley. Charles Fox Parham, by the age of 15, started holding his own meetings, started holding his own revivals. A few, uh, when, he, when he turned 25, he moved to Topeka, Kansas. He opened up a, a healing house where people that were sick, they could come in. He would pray for them he would, until they were healed. They would stay. He would take care of them, pray for them. When they got healed, they left. More sick people came in. A, few, a couple of years later, he started Bethel Bible College. Are we, we don't have the Charles, yeah. All right, someone, hey, someone I don't know, come up here and hold this. Here, you can do it. I have full track. Where's the guys? We need some more guys up here. Next, next thing, we got some guys. Andrew, you're next. Charles Fox Parham starts Bethel Bible College. They're holding a prayer meeting in 1901, and revival breaks forth out of this prayer meeting. This is an amazing correlation. Revival and prayer meeting. Oh. Huh. How about that? Look what happens. One of the students that was part of this prayer meeting, part of this revival, was a guy by the name of William Seymour. William J. Seymour. All right, Andrew, come up here and hold this for me. 1901, William J. Seymour takes this revival that exploded out of this prayer meeting, and he moves to Los Angeles, California, and he starts the Azusa Street Revival. Some of you that are church historians are very familiar with this. Azusa Street Revival, when you look in modern times, has not been, nothing parallels to it. The manifestations of the Spirit of God that they were having. Many Pentecostal denominations came out of the Azusa Street Revival, including Assemblies of God. Any Assemblies people in here? Church of God people? Other Pentecostal denominations birthed out of the Azusa Street Revival. I'm sure it would be extremely easy for almost every one of us in here to do like, you know, the, what, what is that, the, uh, the thing where you take someone and you trace them back to Kevin Bacon? What, the, what is it? Yeah, the six degrees of separation to Kevin Bacon. Yeah, or whatever it is. I'm sure it would be easy for us to do that with the Azusa Street Revival in some way, and almost about everyone in the Elvis in this room. Amazing. You guys, our lineage, our spiritual heritage was birthed in a 110-year prayer meeting. But check this out. It gets even better because in about 1910, 1911, somewhere in there, it's recorded that this guy here William J. Seymour, he prophesied that in a hundred years from now, the Spirit of God is going to move on the people of earth that will dwarf 
the Azusa Street Revival. Well, all right, let's do the math. 1910, 1911, 100 years from now, 2011. That's you and me. That's you and me. You guys, we cannot forsake a burning heart. We have to be the people of prayer that God has called us to be. We have to be the house of prayer that Jesus called us to be. Some of you are here sitting here thinking, yeah, that's really not my gifting. Cody, can you come up here and hold this one? That's not really my gifting. You know, that's great for you, JD. That's great for David Perkins. That's great for my youth pastor. But my gift is not really the gift of prayer. Uh, can I tell you something? I can search all through the scriptures and I never find once where it talks about the gift of prayer. But I can tell you where in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, pray continuously. Pray without ceasing. Pray always. And I can tell you where Jesus says to pray night and day. Some of you guys, if you're really honest with yourself, you say, you know what? I, I don't pray because I don't really know how to pray. Ian Bounds said this. He says, prayer is not learned in the classroom, but in the closet. Listen, I can sit here or someone else can stand up here and talk till we're blue in the face and teach you about prayer, but you're not going to know how to do it unless you just do it. Prayer is simply learned by praying, you guys. Listen, wherever in the world there's dynamic church happening, prayer is at the center. Prayer is the ultimate statement of saying, God, it's not about us. It's not about me, God. It's not even about my church. It's not about the community of believers. It's not about all the cool stuff or how cool my youth group is or all the smoke and the lights and the sound system. It's not about a cool website. It's not about all this. It's not about my senior pastor. It's not about my youth pastor. God, it's simply about you. God, without you, we're hopeless. But God, with you, we're everything. We got to stand up with me for a moment. And let's pray for revival to break forth in the people of our churches and schools and cities. But let's first pray that revival would break forth in our own hearts, that we would be consecrated, that we would be people that would say, Yeah, we're a house of prayer. I'm a house of prayer. Let's spend some time right now. Last night we spent some time in prayer and repentance. Let's just continue to build upon that right now. Let's go ahead and open up your mouth. You can pray with your own voice. And let's just spend like just five minutes here in prayer. Because everything that counts for eternity is birthed in prayer. Prayer is the hinge on which the kingdom of God, of the door of the kingdom of God swings. Do you believe this? Or are you just going to come here and next week be the same person that you were two weeks ago? Are you going to be a house of prayer? Let's pray right now. Let's pray. Do this right now. I want you to lay hands on somebody that you know, that you don't know. I don't care. And I want you to pray out loud a prayer over them that they would be a house of prayer. Just go ahead right now. Pray. God, I just thank you for what you're doing in this room tonight, God, or today. 
Lord, I just thank you for the men and women that are in this room that have made the quality decision to follow after you, to make themselves to be houses of prayer, God. God, I pray that we move beyond disappointment of external circumstances, God, and say, why should I even pray? My prayers don't get answered. God, it's not about us. It's not about my prayers being answered. It's about you, Jesus. God, I pray that from this prayer meeting that we're having right now, that the young men and young women in this room would go to their homes and begin prayer meetings in their homes, in their prayer closet, that they would go to their churches and begin prayer meetings in their churches and at their school campuses, God, and that our heart, God, would burn with what your heart burns for, Jesus, that our heart would break with what your heart breaks for, Jesus. God, have your way in this place. God, we may be forever marked by what you do in our hearts at this moment. God, I just pray blessing right now over in each and every one of these people in the here. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you empower us to do your work in this earth today. But God, more than anything else, we know that it begins with prayer. So light the fire of prayer within our, each and every one of our hearts in Jesus' name. And if you agree with me, shout amen. Amen. And over time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life.